Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on Lisa's publication day for Secluded Cabin Sleeps 6, which has been described as your worst possible Airbnb experience, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a really good tagline. Um, it is. Yep. Um, <laughs> and Lisa, Lisa writes... Um, Different, I mean, they're they're essentially standalone stories. So a couple of you have asked me where you might start, and the truth is, you can read any one of her books, and that's fine. And yeah. you can read this book without having read any of the earlier books. But um, if you want to really get the full picture, you should try to read. How many of you have read Lisa's earlier books? I'm assuming some of you have. Or you wouldn't be here, right? Uh, Terrific. <laughs> so, do any of you have a favorite that you'd like to shout out for the benefit of new people? Confessions on the 745. Okay. Anybody else? Oh, thank you. Last Girl Ghosted. Okay. Anybody else? Oh. All right. Right. So Lisa and I over um, drinks and hummus at the Royal Bonds were talking about her earlier career. And Lisa actually began in publishing as a book publicist, which I did not know. So she's a veteran of what we're doing. But how does it feel to be on the author end of it as opposed to the publicity end of it? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I've, is this thing working? Am I good? Yeah. So I, um, you know, I've always been a writer. I've never been anything. I never have thought about myself any other way. Um, and, of course, you know, I was a reader first. You know, my mom was a librarian. So, I mean, that's where all writers fall in love with story, right, in the pages of somebody else's book. And so I, you know, I always wanted to be a writer. And when I asked my dad, you know, who's an engineer, you know, can I do this? Is this something that I can do with my life? And he basically said, you know, no, <laughs> do not do that. That's not people don't do that. Uh, writing is not a real job and you should think about getting a real job. And I was like, wow. OK. And so I did kind of believe him, even though. I started my first book in um, when I was 19 years old. I was still in college, but when I graduated from college, I just like did not have the um, confidence, not surprisingly, right, to pers to pursue that goal. So I went into publishing, and but I was always like kind of a secret writer, you know. I was always writing in like the nooks and crannies of my life, and so that first book that I started when I was 19 years old, um, I was always kind of working on it you know um but like just in in secret i was like a closet writer did you have anything to say at age 19 um not not much, not much. <laughs> <laughs> but it did take me 10 years to actually okay. write the book so over that decade i did come up with a few things to say and uh and that actually was my first book that that i published with saint martin's press angel fire but it took me you know, all this time because I was working in this big corporate job and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And the time I spent writing just got smaller and smaller until I reached a point in my life where I wasn't writing at all. And I was like, well, you know, you, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be in a place where the only thing that you've ever wanted to do with your life, you just let it slip away. And then five years, 10 years down the road, you're just going to have to look at yourself and say, you never even tried, you never even tried to do it. I couldn't live with that. I figured I could live with sort of a spectacular crash and burn failure, um, but not that. And uh, that was like, you know, those years in publishing, right? I mean, that those are the years that taught me that it actually is a real job and that people do it. <laughs> 
people do do people it. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where I learned that, you know, where I kind of got permission during those years to be, you know, who I always was, I think. Hilariously, we worked out that we worked together for 10 years because I started the bookstore in 1989. Yeah. And Lisa, when was it, 2000? When yeah, you... I, I left in 2000, but I started in book publishing when I, in 1992 when I graduated from, from college. Okay, yeah. so we yeah. had a few years together yeah. that um, and a different relationship than yeah. we currently have. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. So that's great. <laughs> I know. Um, so, you know, when you did, when you wrote your first four books under a different name. So yeah. when you when you moved to being Lisa Unger, what was the reason for that? Yeah, so I, you know, so my first two books were um were purchased by St. Martin's Press and you know, it was like a very small uh print run. It was like very small advance. It was basically like a nickel and a cheese sandwich, right? Like so it was like a don't quit your day job advance. Um, unfortunately I had already quit my day job, so <laughs> it was time to, you know, really step it up. And, you know, I, I it, it was okay because that was like the only, only thing I've ever wanted for my life. So when I got my first contract with St. Martin's, I was like, you know, very, um, you know, it was very much a dream come true. You know, it was like, it was everything. So, and also from all my years, I knew that the right, you know, that first publishing contract is not necessarily a windfall. It's just an open door. Have you know? read Agatha Christie's autobiography? I have not. She had like the worst publishing contract <laughs> ever for her. And I'm serious. You know, yeah. it was a really big deal. There are yeah. many, many authors who will tell you that just getting your foot in the door. Just getting that. Is, just being able to do that, right? Like just the that open door to the writing life is like such a gift. Yeah. And there's a lot of work after that. And so I wrote, you know, I wrote three books for um, St. Martin's Press. And then um, in between the third and fourth book in my series, I had this idea of, for another book. Mm -hmm. And um, I, uh, I got a, a piece of junk mail, right? And on, on the junk mail, there was like, you know, it was like one of those flyers. We probably all have received them. It's like an advertisement on one side. On the other side, there's a picture of a missing child and it in this case it was an age graduated um picture and i looked at it and i said you know to myself what if i looked at this and recognized myself and that was the seed for beautiful lies so i between the third and the fourth book of my contract i wrote beautiful lies it was like a book that just wanted to be written and it kind of wrote itself, it like wrote itself in a, you know, great rush. And um, so my agent loved it. And of course we brought it to St. Martin's Press. So your publisher has what's called um, right of first refusal, which means that they have the right to reject your work before, <laughs> before Everybody anybody else. else. Can. Right. <laughs> exactly. And they did not want Something beautiful different. lives. They didn't want it. And um, my editor was like, we just don't want this. And we want you to write your fourth book in your series, which I did want to write, which I still loved writing my series. I had just also written this other book, but they didn't want it. And so my agent, Elaine Markson, um, she was like, you know what? It's okay. She's like, this book is special and we're going to find a place for it. Um, in the meantime, write your fourth book. And so... I did that, and so she started shopping around um, Beautiful Eyes, and it went to, it was uh, Sally Kim at Random House, um, Shea Earhart Books, as we were discussing earlier, and she was the one that, that, that picked up that book. 
but you know beautiful lies was an evolution for me it was a new it was a new kind of right. work for me and um so we you know wanted to start publishing under my married name lisa unger and we figured that you know we could just write to the five people that had bought the earlier books <laughs> <laughs> And let them know that I was writing under this name now. So that just sort of became, you know, the evolution of my career. I became Lisa Unger, which was my married name. And then eventually those early books have been uh, republished as L Lisa Michonne, which is my maiden name, writing as Lisa Unger, or Lisa Unger writing as Lisa right. Michonne. Just yeah. in case any of you were confused, and I thought that we'd let you know. Just in case anybody was confused, know. I'm sure it's all cleared up for you now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you wrote Beautiful Eyes, then as you've gone on, you haven't gone back to a series. So you've really been interested in. Yeah. Um, and is that, you know, I mean, there's. If you write a standalone book, one of the great things about it is everybody in the book is in jeopardy. You, have the, you the reader, have no guarantee that the characters you meet at the outset of the book are going to survive exactly. to the end. Whereas if you're writing a series, you're pretty sure that the series, the Jack Reacher is not going to die, you right. know, at the end of the book. Not, right. right. <laughs> and it's actually a different conversation that I have with authors writing series because we can talk about some stuff that would be a real spoiler you know, yeah. if we're outside a series, but since we all know that Jack is going to, you know, That's make right. it through. He's going to make it through. We know that. We're sure right. that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. Yeah. For, and I've, and I've really, you know, I've had, I have books that are kind of linked together. Like the first four books right. are a series and then the, you know, Beautiful Eyes and Sliver of Truth are both with Ridley Jones. But, you know, for me as a writer, you know, it's, it wouldn't be possible for me to stay with one character and and write that write that type of book where you know I didn't uh, that I I knew what was going to happen every time like I have to be so engaged with my characters and with my story and I have to be um, I write for the same reason that I read because I want to know what's going to happen to the people that are living in my head and so if I don't have that joy and that excitement of discovery and I'm not in that like very intense place that I like to bring my reader to, then I can't, I, I mean, where is the engine, right, for the year that you spend with those characters? Like, for me, I need that, you know, I need that discovery and that excitement and that the joy of creating and, and getting to know people on the page. Plus, authors are very special. I had a, an interesting conversation with Claire McIntosh at 2 o'clock this oh, afternoon, the last party, yeah. and she said other people see a beautiful lake in the west in the Welsh countryside and it's winter and it's cold and you know you know that people are going to go swimming on New Year's Day to celebrate like they do on the Welsh side. She said other people look at that and think, wow, it's too cold to go swimming. I look at it and I say there's going to be a body floating <laughs> okay. up. And you know, and I think I think you know we've talked about that that if you're a mystery writer uh, or a crime fiction writer, which is a better phrase, Everywhere you look, there is the possibility of a crime or a discovery or something. It's a different way of looking at the world, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. And it's definitely, and I don't think it's like, I mean, I think that maybe your brain probably already works that way. I mean, at least that's true for me. I've always had this really dark imagination, like even as a kid. And I always, you know, I'm like, I always think of myself as kind of like, you know, you're you're at the movies and like, you're watching a horror movie and there's a noise in the basement and there's a girl going down to the basement. Everybody in the audience is like, don't do it. 
don't go into the basement, but she goes in anyway. That's me. <laughs> I'm the girl who wants to go into the basement and figure out what the what the noise is. And so that's sort of, you know, kind of always the way my, my brain has worked. And so I think that's why I write thrillers. It's not like my brain started working a different way. And then, you know, after I started writing, it was all, it was always that like, you know, and it's the same, like, so secluded cabin, like we go to a beautiful cabin in the woods, you know, my family and it's gorgeous and it's, you know, we're hiking and everything's beautiful, but all I can think about is like, so what about that lock code on the door? Um, does everybody get that same code or is it new for everyone? And, you know, just the isolation of it, it's just kind of like, you know, your brain just starts spinning out these, well, okay, my brain just starts spinning out these kind of really dark scenarios. And, you know, if it doesn't land on the page, then what happens to it? <laughs> it just drives you crazy, maybe. It's probably better that you write it out than you act it out, Absolutely. all things considered. <laughs> I can see that it could be. So, you know, recently, the last couple of years, and I'm sure partly it's due to the pandemic, Agatha Christie has had a moment, not necessarily Agatha Christie herself, but the literary forms yeah. that she wrote for classic mystery have really made, um, of, have become really popular again. So we're seeing um, what Claire called this afternoon the closed cast mystery, but I call the English country house mystery. Yeah. And you can translate that to any location in which True. so many people and only so many people are inside a boundary whether it's a room or a cabin on a ship or a theater or a rental cabin. And when a crime occurs, only those people can have committed the crime. Right. And, you know, and then Poirot shows up or Miss Marple or whatever it is, and we go <laughs> on from there. And it's a completely different structure than a thriller, which is basically the author starts you in some place and takes you on an adventure on a ride, and you try to work out whether who's going to win, the good guy or the bad guy. So it's not a thriller is about who's going to win and a mystery in a more classic sense is about who did it and why did they do it. Right. And a locked room mystery, which I'm one of the reasons, because I think that that term is misapplied to this yeah, book. Absolutely. Totally. <laughs> a rock, a locked room mystery is all about how it was done. And so the driving question in a locked room mystery is not who did it or why did it or who will win. It's how did, did it? They do it? How did yeah. they do it? And the puzzle for the reader yeah. is to work out how a guy in a locked room with a fireplace blocked and shutters over the windows and the door locked on the inside and all, how did somebody kill him? That's the question. Right. And and so when you see this book described as a locked room mystery, it's not. It it's not. It's <laughs> a. It's in fact an Agatha Christie is like. You know, the, the old guy with the fortune who's either A, going to leave it all to his stepson, or B, is going to marry an imprudently young woman or something, invites all of his relatives to his secluded castle in Scotland in a snowstorm so he can tell them what he's going to do. You know, it's like, I'm holding up my hand, somebody kill me, right? Yeah. But this is different it because, is different. Um, is. so tell us about how yeah. it all works out. Okay, so I'll tell you about it. Um, so, so, so Secluded Cabin Sleep Six was, was in part inspired by pandemic vacations that my family and I took to very beautiful cabins that I'm sure would have been wonderful for anybody else. I'm sure it would have been a lovely vacation. Um, and, you know, in, in not only in... Um, in the the woods of Georgia, but also in uh, the Asheville area, and and some of those vacations were with my extended family, 
Um, and I don't know if you've ever traveled with your extended family. Those trips can also be very inspirational. And so <laughs> to murder, <laughs> I didn't say that far. My mother might be watching. We don't know. Mom, it's okay. So um, we, so we have these really, you know, these really, um, you know, this feeling of like just isolation, which we wanted or we thought we wanted or we needed to have because of the pandemic. And, you know, it was it, it, for somebody who's, you know, we live in Florida and it, I wouldn't exactly call it urban, but I am, you know, a, a, like a New York City's in my my past. And so I have that kind of like city vibe. So when you take like I I'm never afraid in the city like ever, but in in nature, sometimes <laughs> it's a little scary. Like there's like the sort of the imperviousness of the trees. Right. They just kind of watch our folly so that was part of it and the other part of it was um for me uh, an ongoing obsession that i've had with dna testing so that was another another thing that i've you know very curious about it and so um it's short of actually testing my own dna because i've done a little bit too much research um to actually take a test myself yes exactly wow. right so those were that's really a scary thought do is. you suspect something in your family oh no i'm not no <laughs> no i don't i really don't what i don't like is giving my data to oh, okay. a corporation that that's more i'm more of a conspiracy theorist than thinking that anybody is gonna like it, anything interesting would happen in my family like so i'm sure not you don't think you have a remote cousin that's a serial killer that they will track down well i i mean i think if there is a cousin a remote cousin who is a serial killer like I'll probably find out about that somehow, right? Like the DNA will kind of lead back, right? So that's okay. That would be fine. <laughs> I just don't. I just don't want my corporations to have my private medical right information. So and and that's sort of like you know over the last few books, you know, technology has played a big role in the stories and confessions on the 745 social media was a um, something that I looked at um, and and how con artists can use that to gain entry into your lives. In Last Girl Ghosted, it was online dating. Um, but it's not really um, the technologies that interest me as much as it is how uh, these technologies are re re rewriting the way we relate to each other. That's what interests me. Like there's a big theme through all of my work about identity and what makes us who we are. And this is, um, you know, a very big piece of Secluded Cabin Sleep Sex. Absolutely. And in point of fact, well, the opening scenes at Christmas, yeah. Yeah. you really make that very clear because what happens? Okay, so when we, when we start Secluded Cabin Sleep Sex, we gather um, for Christmas dinner with Hannah and her brother Mako, her husband, his um her husband, uh, her brother's wife, and, you know, their daughter, Gigi. And, of course, you know, it's an idyllic family gathering where everyone's happy and there's no dysfunction at all. <laughs> at all. And, and it's perfect. And on the surface, it does look very nice, um, like all these sort of family gatherings do. But then at the end of the evening, um, behind the Christmas tree, Hannah's father discovers a stack of gifts that are wrapped and they are from a secret Santa and nobody in the family will take credit for having wrapped and put these gifts under the tree. 
And so when they hand out the gifts and everybody starts to open it, it's um, a box and on the it's a foil box and on the front of it it says origins, their DNA tests for everybody in the family. So everybody gets one and everybody has a different reaction. Some people are curious, some people are, you know, throwing their tests in the trash. And um, some people plan to take the test. And so what could go what could go wrong? <laughs> it's gonna be fine. Right. And so <laughs> and so when is it they head off to the cabin in the woods? Yeah, it's a, it's about six months later and um, Hannah's brother Mako has, you know, constructed this beautiful vacation he wants it's a grand gesture he's like sort of the king of the grand gesture he's a tech mogul he's kind of larger than life and he wants to take his sister hannah her husband um his wife and their family friend uh cricket and her mysterious new boyfriend out to a secluded cabin in the woods to have a much needed disconnect from their uh, very busy, addicted, modern life. And so they all head out to the cabin and um, they're all hauling with them a lot of baggage in the form of secrets and lies. And outside in the shadows is a watcher. Um, and this stranger is running a dark agenda of revenge. And there's a storm brewing and cell phone service is spotty. <laughs> cell phone service is spotty. And, you know, uh, again, what could go wrong? <laughs> but, but, you know, you raised a really important point, which is that um, to really isolate anybody, you have to find a way to kill off technology or social media. Yeah. And, you know, this, the ubiquitous cell phone sure. is a real problem. So you have to find a way to disrupt cell phone service. Um, not everybody can have their battery go out at the same time. That's so, right. <laughs> you know, which is, a, or they're not underground um, right. or whatever. So, yeah, um, and that was actually some, one of the features of our trips to these cabins was that, you know, there were these tremendous dead spots where cell phone, your cell phone just didn't work. Right. And it, I mean, I found that very interesting. It was okay because, you know, I had my child with me, but if I hadn't had her with me and I had not had, you know, cell service, like as a mom, I would have found, I would find that very terrifying. And, you know, technology for me has, just plays a big part in all, in all of my novels. You do need to disrupt it at some point in some way, but like it's, it has so rewritten how we, how we relate to each other, how we connect to each other. I mean, when I think about the way, I, the way I ran around as a teenager, completely untethered, as it were, and the things that I did and got away with, you know, my daughter is not going to, it's not going to be able to do that. You know, she's, no. she's, she's tracked, she's fully tracked and it's a norm, right? Like this is a norm for all that all the kids know that they're being tracked. Like we have this like life 360 app. We know where she's driving, how fast she's driving. You know, there's like a feature on the app that would let us know if she had an abrupt stop, if there was an accident and like this is what we consider to be the norm now. This is a norm. And it's just it, and it's become a norm in such a short short period of time. You know, but those things are very interesting like to me as a writer, you know, like watching that dot. Like what is the potential for that when you know when when your when your connection is cut. 
right? Like you expect to be able to reach your husband, reach your daughter, reach your mom, whatever, right? And like then, and then once that phone goes away, that that line is cut. That yeah, but you know, cut. it's exhausting. I was thinking that that um, I'm never as a small business owner, I am never not working anymore. That's true. There are no vacations wherever I am. Whether I was in French Polynesia, I'm in Bora Bora, you know, right. on a yacht, and you know, I'm still like, you know, yeah. answering email or exactly. whatever it is. You can't. And and I, I think back to when I was a child, I used to hop on my bicycle at eight o'clock on Saturday morning, and I would come home and. At dinner yeah, time, yeah. nobody knew where I was. You know, I was down at Lake Michigan in the water. I was out in the Skokie Lagoons. I yeah. was, you know, and we didn't we didn't think about you know predators mm -hmm. or accidents or of course we were. Yeah. And I think being a feral child is a great gift. Yeah. I'm convinced that's one reason that I have aged as well as I have because <laughs> you know I've yeah. had tons of exercise. Yes, we ate real food. Yes, of um, course. You know, yeah. um, we all weren't sitting stuff. hunched over things all day exactly. and looking at our screens exactly and all the right. rest of it. Yeah. And that Agreed. privilege is gone. Yeah, it is a little bit gone. And it's an interesting evolution. And it's also an interesting evolution, as I see it, like, you know, technology, um, if you think about how technology has evolved, over the last 20 years, you know, the amount of change that has taken place in the technology in our lives, the computing power that we, you know, we have in the phone that we carry in our hand, like the exponential growth is absolutely shocking. Um, however, our brains have evolved, not at all, like in a millennia, right? <laughs> and yet, we're still asked to process all this information, right? We're still asked to have this phone in our pocket that's, you know, you know, it's your email, it's your text, it's your book, it's your radio, it's your tracking device for your child, it's your, you know, it's your alarm system in your home, it's all of it. And, you know, it's just the evolution of the device, but, you know, and, and, we, and we have adapted to it. But how is that changing our relationships? So that's the thing that interests me in the in fiction is how how does this technology? It's not for me. It's not a burden. Like how do I get rid of the cell phone? It's like it's like another avenue that I can like spelunk into. Like how is this how is this changing the way we relate relate to each other? How we communicate with each other? Which means, of course, you have to keep up with technology as it's evolving. <laughs> yeah. So are you on book talk? Are you emulating? Colleen Hoover, for example. Oh my gosh! Well, I am okay. So I'm, I am on BookTok, sort of. I have, a, I have a TikTok account, but um, it's it's being managed by my husband. <laughs> I'm sorry, he probably wouldn't want me to tell you that, but he he is managing it. And I I said to him the other day, I was like, my TikTok is being managed by a 54 year old man, and it shows. <laughs> it really shows. <laughs> But he basically repurposes all of it. I do a lot of video stuff for, you know, Instagram and all that. Like we're, you know, we're very, we're very on top of it. We're, you know, we, it, it can be fun and creative. It can be overwhelming and, you know, soul crushing. It can be all of these things. Um, but yeah, so that he basically repurposes my videos for TikTok. So like, it's totally not working. Like I'm not like a, I'm not like a TikToker at all, but I am on there. So if you're interested Go on TikTok and just, you know, throw some likes uh, um, in the direction of my husband because it, me it means a lot to him. It really does. I'm also <laughs> caught up in it, and yet we're selling out to the Chinese. You know, we actually know that this is a yeah. Chinese-owned company, and we are giving them 
free access to data and to us while we do it. Yeah, I mean, you know? the, the implications are huge. They really are. They are. They are. And all of this stuff is, like even the DNA testing, the implications of that are gigantic. Um, probably most people know about the the forensic detectives who, you know, have used these sort of, um, you know, the, the lay DNA tests to submit stored, you know, uh, criminal DNA evidence. And so uh, that's recently been uh, ruled unconstitutional because there is no permission given that if, you know, if I were to submit my DNA and they had some DNA somewhere from a serial killer, you know, my distant cousin, the serial killer, if they had that DNA stored and they put it into 23andMe and I turned up as a match as a cousin and they came to me to say, hey, do you know this guy? <laughs> or is this, is your cousin a serial killer? Like, that's not really fair. I didn't, I, I signed up because I wanted to know, you know, whether my, my parents really came from Italy. And instead I found out that I have, you know, a cousin who's a serial killer. So like, that's not really constitutionally fair. So it has been ruled unconstitutional, but it's very interesting that, you know, that it's that kind of net, it's that kind of web, it's that kind of network of information. And then, you know, certainly corporations have not earned our trust right like so that like, to turn over the data to them you know maybe at the at the in this moment you know that's perfectly fine but you know when regimes change rules change so what's 10 years from now how is that data used no i read the other day that yeah. you know 10 years from now households will have robots working in their homes and i'm thinking not me you know, I'm still going to clean my house myself. There's no way I'm going to have a, a robot. Um, yeah. And, you know, every time we get a security system or whatever it is in our house, we are giving up all kinds of access. I mean, you can't hack a front door key, but you right. certainly can, you know, yeah. an automatic. Right. So, you know, I'm staying very low tech because um, yeah. I just don't want to do all that. Yeah. Actually, I think in the DNA testing, what really has been upsetting to an awful lot of families is finding out that your father isn't who you thought he was yeah. or your mom, you know, gave away a child or um, all kinds of it's it's done some real structural damage to families, emotional damages. Absolutely. And I read a book called The Lost Family that is is really all about that. And, you know, the author um, of of this book posits basically that if you submit your DNA to one of these places, the chances are you're going to find out something that surprises you. And once you know it, you can't unknow it. So, so in so. secluded cabin sleep <laughs> six, indeed, you might suspect that if everybody got a DNA kit and even one person submitted it for testing, right. that maybe there will be a surprise. There might be. Just saying. And that's yeah. really all we can say about it, because <laughs> otherwise we'll wreck it for you. Yeah, we might we just ruin yeah. it. <laughs> so, but we didn't get a chance to talk to you about your earlier books. So yeah. tell us a little more about Last Girl of Ghosted and Confessions on the 745, because most people here have probably read them by now. Yeah, so Confessions on the 745 um, actually has just been optioned by Netflix. Yeah, so um, Jessica Alba read... Confessions on the 745, and her production company brought it to um, brought it to Netflix, and we have a script. So I'm waiting to see the script. So, you know, as you know, we'll see what happens from here. But it's all it all seems to be moving in the right direction. And so, Confessions on the 745 is kind of loosely inspired 
by uh, Strangers on a Train. Um, it's just like that, only really just that moment of like two strangers meeting and, you know, is it a chance encounter? Is it not? What is the, you know, electricity of that, that moment of meeting and how does it, you know, how can it um, unstitch your life? So that's really confessions on the 745 and can you hold up your mic yeah oh sorry yeah and um and last girl ghosted is about a young woman who's an advice columnist and she comes from like a very dark past and um she has sort of white knuckled her way into the light she's living a, a life that she loves except that she you know doesn't have any love in her life and so her best friend Jax kind of pushes her into the world of online dating and Jax, oh, Jax, I know, <laughs> pushes her into the world of online dating. And, um, you know, she start, She has some underwhelming encounters. And then um, she meets Adam. And when she meets Adam, she falls for him very hard. Um, and they have like a whirlwind romance. And after a particularly romantic evening, he he asks her, he says, tell me something that you've never told anyone. And she does. And the next day, um, he ghosts her. He disappears. His social media profiles disappear. Uh, his phone is disconnected. The place where she thought he lived is just a vacation rental. And so she's, you know, crushed. She's devastated. And uh, then a detective comes to her door and he tells her that, you know, she's not the first person to fall in love with Adam and that all the other girls that have are missing. And so instead of like sort of licking her wounds, she decides that, you know, she's going to follow his very dark digital trail and um, that she's going to be the last girl ghosted. And right. that's that, yeah. So that's her decision because yeah. you know you could read that title a different right. way, exactly. but you know she decides this is enough right. and she's going to be the last one he does it to. Exactly right. Right. Yeah. Now yeah, I yeah. think they're really fascinating books. So I always like to give your readers hope that there will be a new book. So are you? I mean, it's always good <laughs> to end on a positive note, right? Yeah. Before we ask <laughs> questions. So do you have um, any little hints about what may be coming next? Well. I can never talk about it. You know, I can, I just can't, I can't talk about it is until there it's done. A book but yeah, next? it is. If there, if there is a book coming, it's done. It's in editorial right now. So we're very close to, you know, being, you know, I'm just going to be doing one more draft maybe, and then it'll be sort of into production. So yes, there's another book coming. Um, it will, um, it will be a psychological thriller. Uh, bad things will happen. And I really hope, I hope that it keeps you up way past your bedtime turning the pages. <laughs> so that's, that's the best I can do on that one. <laughs> fine. I mean, I just think it's good to know that there's a book actually yes. Yes. done. Yes. I have, I regret to tell you, watch how cold-blooded readers can be because mm. they get invested in an author and then the author dies or quits and you know, well, it's really, <laughs> well, recently that's true, but that didn't used to be the way, but you know, readers can be extraordinarily yeah. selfish and, you know, it isn't that they necessarily mourn the author, but they want to know, you know, that's yeah, they more. they want to know, is there another one? Is there no, another they want the character yeah. to live. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely. the thing. They yeah, really, they if, especially if it's a series. Yes. They just can't bear the thought that that's all you're going to know about know. this character. I know. 
Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing. It's like a, you, the relationship that your readers have with your books and your characters is it's a completely separate relationship than you have with your book and your characters. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's important, I think, to, to honor that um, most of the time. <laughs> well, the truth yeah. is that everybody reads a book differently. Each yeah. one of you will read this book and have Absolutely. a different experience doing it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I find it so interesting that, especially because we're about to do that, we get to the question part. Sometimes I see authors getting this kind of dazed look in their <laughs> eye, and they go, is that really what you got from my book? Or did I say that? Did I say or, that? Did that happen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's really, it's really, um, but but I think that's that's the point of the storytelling. You know, storytelling is that people get to make it in part their own story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there is a there's a whole a relationship that your that your reader has with your books that, you know, is it's such a special it's such a special thing you know you write your book and obviously you bring everything that you can to the novel but you like as a professional writer a writer who knows that their work is going to be published you know that there's another life for that book in the hand in the hands of every reader you know everybody is going to is going to have a different experience with that book because of what they bring to it and that's part of the magic of of this work we had a wonderful writer years ago named Robert Eversos who said a really true thing. I often quote it. He said, every book really exists in three forms. There's the form, the platonic form that's in the author's head before they write it. <laughs> it's perfect. Yes. You know, this is going to be the perfect book. Right. And then there's the book the author actually writes, <laughs> uh, which is not necessarily the platonic book that right. they first conceived of. Right. But then there's the book that every reader reads. And I think it's important, you know, to remember that, yeah. that, you know, you start out hoping the book will be, or maybe you don't, if you're a real pantser, you don't have any idea what the book's going to be. That's me. I don't have any okay. idea. Yeah. So you plunge in. You plunge in with faith. You know, you listen to your characters. You know, for me, it's always, you know, a couple of things. Like uh, in this case, it was the cabins and the DNA and like my ongoing obsession with those types of things. And then if it connects with something deeper that's going on with me, then I start to hear a voice or or voices, and it's those voices that um, that carry me through the manuscript. I follow those voices, and it's an act of faith. You know, like after all these years of, of writing novels, like I believe that if I have that feeling and I hear those voices, that there's a story there, and and I'm going, I'm going to find it. And very often, you know, it's, um, you know, it's a long, it's a long relationship. It's a relationship over a year at least, right? With trying to, you know, find your way into the story and to make the story the best that it can be. And so there's that first draft in like nine months to 12 months for me. And then, you know, then it goes to your editor, you know. So for me, there's like multiple drafts. You know, I might do a draft and then put it aside and then go back and do two, maybe three drafts before I ever turn it into my editor. And when I turn it into her, I know that it is it is the pinnacle of my ability, right? Like I, it's the best that I can do. And then it goes to my editor and it comes back and there's an editorial phase and that it wasn't the best you could do, <laughs> no, Lisa. It was, but that's when I make it the best that it can be <laughs> in the editorial phase. Like that's where you bring it to the reader, right? Because when you write it for in in and it's yours and nobody else has read it, then it's one thing. And then when your ed your editor reads it, especially if you have a good relationship with your editor and she's somebody that you trust and 
you know, and that you know that she gets you and she too wants the book to be the best that it can be. That's the space where you, you really bring it to the next level or try to. So when you say yeah. you write multiple drafts, how do the drafts differ? I mean, what is it you do with the second draft that's different and what do you do with the third yeah. draft? So when I'm done, so when I'm done with the book, I, you know, I might put it aside for, I don't know, maybe a couple of days, ne never more than a week. And then I go back and I start to read. I just read from, from page one. And so a lot of times my first draft is going to be, I don't know, let's say 90,000 words. That second draft is probably going to be 100,000 words, right? Yeah. So I do, I add. I'm not, and structurally, a lot, most of the time, structurally, we're about 95% there in that first draft. Like, because it evolves for me on the page the way it does for the reader, like, that structure is is solid, right? So for me, it's about flushing out, making things understandable, you know, digging deeper, you know, working on the writing, making sure everything is exactly the way I want it said, you know, deeper into character, revealing more about the story in, in different ways. So for me, it's always, it's, it's always adding. But then, you know, then, then in the editorial process, you may take stuff out, but I'm still always, <laughs> still always adding. <laughs> I know my editor wish I was like cut more, but I'm like, well, yeah, I did. I cut eight thousand words, but then I wrote ten. <laughs> Very often, editing or, or rewriting is about taking out. Yes. As Elmore Leonard famously said, I take out the words that readers skip. And very often, first drafts have too many words right. and uh, or repetitions, and so the whole the whole deal is about cutting. Right. But like you're interesting if you're yeah. if yeah, you're fluffing it, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if fluffing it. <laughs> expanding. Let me expanding. say expanding. <laughs> I like expanding better. Expanding is a kinder word, right? Yes. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't know if you had questions. <laughs> you're just doing a photo. Patrick is monitoring the, the, the streaming, so he may oh, have yeah. <laughs> online. We had a really lively group the other night. Gosh, yeah, we had all kinds of people asking questions. Yeah. You got any tonight's? Okay. Okay, I'm just going to say it, and it always sounds really weird, but my characters come with their names. Like, I don't name characters. I feel like I, I, a long time ago I started... I stopped thinking about characters as people that I create and started thinking about them as people that I meet. And so they come with their names and I'm, and they're, and I'm very, I'm very attached to those names. And there have been some times where I've had to change the names once for legal reasons. And I did that because I had to, but I never stopped thinking about the, that character with a different with a different name it was always bruce it was always bruce or, right. or whatever <laughs> like i can't it's it's very difficult for me to to do that like and also you know um writers do a thing where you know you donate yeah. a name and i did that once and it was it was brutal for me because i just like wow. i couldn't make a character and give it a name like it had to co come with a name and once it was a pet like that somebody wanted me to name a pet in my book after their pet and even that was really hard. <laughs> I, so I don't do that. I don't do that anymore. I don't auction off names anymore. It's just a thing. It's a it's an ism. It's I can't. 
no that's their name it's like i can't all what if i just started all of a sudden calling you like louise or something like i can't do that your name is barbara like i can't think of you as anything you else know, i actually changed <laughs> from my my middle name to my first name when i went to high school i okay. hated my middle name i was judy oh. and it's a good thing i did it because my brother subsequently married to judy so oh, there would have been yeah <laughs> but i never felt like a judy and, and so yeah. when i went to my my first name actually is barbara my father told the day he died Call me Judy. Yeah. He could never get, he'd he go, could Bob, never get Judy. Over you know, he could never, <laughs> uh, and I understood that. I was yeah. never mad at him, you know. Right. It's he just, just like a thing. You just, yeah. Yeah. You just like, it's so integrated for some reason. But yeah. So I kind of feel that way about my, about my character names. You bet. What Lisa was talking about is that one way to raise money for charity yes. um, is that authors will often agree um, that um, it's called naming rights. And mm -hmm. people can bid, and the high bidder gets to yeah. then have the author name a character or a pet, which is interesting. Right. And the book after them. And <laughs> once I can remember, I don't even know how it happened, but I was reading a book by Judy Van Giesen, and there was like a abandoned car on the side of the road and the cops are reading off the license plate i thought that's a really familiar number <laughs> then i realized it was mine <laughs> and i i wrote to her and i said she said i'm sorry i saw it in the parking lot you know i just uh, borrowed it <laughs> and and there have been some odd that's instances so um where people have you know authors have put in phone numbers yeah. and it turns out that it's a real one for somebody and yeah. that can get Really, I, I was fine with Judy. It was just funny. But um, but yeah. phone numbers have actually caused some real problems. Yeah. yeah, and it's weird, too. And you do wind up, like, you know, sort of altering those or, like, not putting numbers well, in your It's almost impossible to generate right. one anymore that isn't right. a real phone number. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's really hard to do that. Right, yeah. right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So the Hollows is my is my fictional town, um, and it always conspires to get itself into every book. So you'll almost always find like at least a Hollows cameo in in most in most of the books. Um, I don't I, I think that there is going to be another Hollows book because like I never stop thinking about the Hollows, and there are certain characters that I know have more to do and more to say. I just don't know when that book it, when that book is going to be. So, um, stay tuned. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's time to celebrate. Yeah, I will let you know when it's time to celebrate. Cash the check. <laughs> That's what exactly. you did. Yep. When I cash it, yeah, exactly. It's like a trip to the bank. Yay. Um, <laughs> when uh, when I'm ready to celebrate, I'm every everybody is going to celebrate with me. We're going to have like a fun party and a watch party and all that stuff but when it when it's time to celebrate i won't be celebrating alone well lisa's a good friend of karen slaughter who yes. can lead the way yes, right yep right. so that's i expect right. terrible and evil things from you and karen oh well of course <laughs> i mean that goes without saying she has a new um i just saw that there was a a thing about will trent the oh, first yeah. i saw i saw a too. photo of it um yeah. and i thought how wonderful i know it looks really cool yeah so i think it's, i i think that um Karen's new show, the Will Trent show, is going to be on ABC, and also I think it's going to stream on Hulu, something like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It might not be. Uh, well, he, he could be kind of like an he could be like kind of an other 
Willa Trent, like well, the, the sexy that, TV that Willa Trent. That is a hazard, you know. If yeah. you've got, I mean, that's why they don't often put real faces on characters in right, on book on covers, covers because exactly. people want to yeah. imagine them. And you know, it's a danger for authors sometimes to listen to their audiobook narrator True. because then that voice gets in your head, and yeah. you know, you can't um, necessarily yeah. get away from it. Right. So yeah, right. there right. there are. Um, and also, there's something about TV where people start with ownership, and then actors kind of take ownership of the author's story. Yes. Yes, I've seen that. I've yeah. seen that I happen. Mike, I think Mike Connolly talks about that. The with the which one was it? Yeah, with Bosch, but not the not the current one. But he talks about maybe it wasn't Bosch. It was some character that you know. Um, had a movie or a television show, and he just could he couldn't reconnect to that character. Do you remember which one it was? Yeah, it Maybe. was. I think it was Clint Eastwood in Bloodwork. Oh, was it? Yeah, and Michael's solution to that was he killed the character in the next book. Oh. <laughs> it really is. We've talked about that. Michael's, you know, we've done his entire career together, yeah. and I can remember that all too well. No, he really likes Titus Welliver, and I noticed yeah. that Welliver is narrating. Michael will be here tomorrow night. Um, I noticed the title Swelliver is narrating Desert Star, oh. the audio book, oh, which really? I thought was really interesting because oh, really I'm not sure that yeah. he has done that um, yeah. all along. Yeah, yeah. That's, really, that's super interesting. So do you all have questions? What, what would you like to ask? Hi. I mean, you really don't, you know, like, uh, so I was involved very early on before they started writing the script. We had like some kind of, you know, serious conversations about structure, you know, Confessions on the 745 is, um, it's, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, do it's like a dual timeline, you know, the, some, some of the characters evolve and grow from children into adults. And so there's, um, you know, there's a lot of layers to it that they wanted to ask how would I how would I want to see it on a screen? Like, would it be flashbacks? Would it be a dual timeline? Would it be something like that? So there were a lot of early conversations. And then when uh, when the script is done, I'll see the script. It'll be a, a there either it's either going to be a six or an eight part uh, limited edition series. And so I'll see that it'll come to me, and I'll make my notes, and um, I'll send my notes back, and they'll completely ignore those notes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think you do kind of have to, you know, you have to understand that the book belong the book belongs to you. The book is mine. I wrote the book. The um the television show or the movie is going to be another entity. And I'll have whatever limited involvement I'm allowed to have, but it will not entirely be mine. And I think you have to kind of Except that. Well, for one know. thing, it's a group of writers that yeah. write a script. Right. It's called the writer's room. Yeah. And um, additionally, the actors have input. And who was it I was just talking to that said, I'm trying to think, it was so funny. He said, he was listening along to whatever they were doing. The actor said, you know, put out some line and said, my character would never say that. <laughs> the author's going, yes, they would. I wrote yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. So you have to, you Yeah, know, it's another, I, art, another artist yeah. sensibility on the work. I mean, it's, it's it's not dissimilar from what we were saying about the about the reader. Yeah. You know, the reader has a relationship. The, the screenwriter is going to have a relationship with your book and how she wants to see it 
on the screen. The people who are acting are going to have a relationship to the character that they're acting. And, you know, you have to have, I think, respect for that, you know, you respect do. for the for other people's artistic vision. And if you don't want to respect it, then you shouldn't sign your shouldn't sign your rights away. And sometimes there are physical limitations. Diana sure. was telling me she went off to do an Outlander thing in Scotland, and she had written a scene in a particular way for a particular room. But in the place where they were filming it, the room wasn't like that. It was it was a different structure, and there wasn't any way to overcome that. So things had to change. So sometimes, you know, it, it has to do with the location as well or right. the landscape that you have to conform, yeah. you know, to that, too. To, so there's so yeah. many different things that come into play. Yeah, and I think it's kind of, I mean, I think it's kind of cool. You know, I mean, I think, it, I mean, it's interesting when you, you know, when you hear the audio, when I, when I listen to the audiobook, like, I find that very, I find that very interesting, you know, to hear how a reader reads the book. Again, it's another version of the book. It's not, it is what I wrote, of course, but it hasn't. It's another. There's another layer to it, even in the audiobook. Oh, that's really yeah. true. And yeah. you know, just to finish this up, any of you watch Shetland? The Anne Cleves has written. It's a wonderful series, and she said all she had to say about those characters in seven books. And the series went on. And I said to her, you know, are you okay with that? And that's what she said to me. She said, I said what I had to say about mm -hmm. Jimmy Perros and all, and now he has right. a life of his own. Right. And it'll go on. Actually, unfortunately, it went on this season, and then, yeah. you know, it's retiring. But they did, I think, two seasons where she had no participation at all. Right. It wasn't based on books she'd written. You know, so sometimes they can take on a life of their own. The mm -hmm. story can go on mm -hmm. outside of anything mm -hmm. that you have written. Yeah. And I, I think there's something cool about that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I might feel differently if I hated something that somebody made, but I don't think so. I mean, I think you just have to respect, you have to respect a, another artist's vision of the work. Right. Did some, you had questions. Yeah, it has. Um, I do. I, I generally get um, auditions. Like I'll I'll get I'll get multiple um, actors or um, voiceover artists who you know will audition for the book. And um, but over the last the last I think last four books have been edit have been um, narrated by the same woman of um, a, a woman named Vivian Lahaney. And she's amazing. She is so great. So now I just say, please, you know, can, can we have Vivian again? And she also loves reading the book. So she's always asking for them as well. So as long as she's willing to do the books, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy to have her, have her do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, uh, all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it might be. It might be. I mean, it is really a specialized skill. Um, and I think that I, I think, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think a lot of a lot more nonfiction writers read their work. You know, maybe if it's a memoir or something like that, maybe it's easier to access that voice. Um, but I personally would never do it. I mean, I'm sure you would not want to hear me 
read my book aloud for whatever it is, eight hours, 10 hours. Like, I don't think that I have, I don't think that I have that particular skill. And there are so many people that are doing it so, so well that I think I would defer to, to the, to those very talented people. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I just know that I don't have that skill. So I wouldn't try to, I wouldn't try to force myself <laughs> into that process. And all of a sudden audiobook sales, like <laughs> they decrease by 90% <laughs> as soon as I start reading my own novels. But I think that the, so many people are doing it so well. And again, it's another moment where, you know, you have to respect, you have to respect that, that artistic version of the work. But I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty, in, in most of the cases, I've never, you know, I've never listened to an audiobook or listened to any, any audio version of any of the, the work that I've done and been upset or offended or felt like, oh God, they did not get that at all. But like, you know, I mean, I just, and I, and I don't spend hours listening to my own audiobooks either. So. <laughs> So maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's why I'm so happy with it. <laughs> Put it aside. Right. Exactly. All right. Is there a final question? Ah. Yeah. Yeah, my, my golden creative hours are 5 a.m. to noon. Like those are my those are my best hours. I try to get up and write as early as possible. I like to be as close to my dream brain as I can get. And so the ideal situation is that I basically just kind of wake up and like roll over to my computer and start writing. Like that's like the that's the best case scenario. Of course, I'm a mom and I have a dog and you know th that that doesn't always happen, but that real important block for me every day is, you know, from about 6:30 to seven o'clock to noon, like those, those, that block is very important to me as a writer. But you know, I'm a I'm a professional writer. I can I can write anywhere. I can write under pretty much any circumstances. I could write in the car. I could write with the television on. If I'm in the zone, it really does not matter what's going on. Um, I can, um, you know, and sometimes at towards the end of a book, especially, there's a very intense phase of writing. And then it might be all, it might be all day, you know, it might start in the morning and I might still be writing after dinner. So, um, it, as, as they approach the end of the book, it becomes much more intense, but as a, you know, as a, as a main, you know, sort of staple of my writing life, it's those early morning hours that are, are the most critical. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's true. It's true. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, you are kind of beholden to it. I mean, you do have to participate in technology um, to a certain extent. You know, it's like just try to give up your smartphone. 
you know, like that, you, you, right. I mean, you don't have, you don't have maps. You like, you don't, you can't control your alarm. You know, it's like. Well, you can, you but can, I'll tell but you what you can't do is you right. can't travel. If you don't have a smartphone today, right. you cannot travel. There is right. no way to go through an airport or do anything that yeah. is. Right. <laughs> You're like, we got to get yeah. back to the hotel. But I'm just talking about the technical part of yeah. it. Yeah. That's probably true yeah. for ticketing now. And and actually, yeah, yeah I mean, there you can do it, but you're 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 count you're countercultural and like uh, there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong with being countercultural like sometimes you should be countercultural i'm happy to be countercultural yeah. in an airport i want an actual right. paper an ticket actual but right. at the I, same I, time you know yeah. Um, yeah yeah and i actually i actually did print up a paper boarding pass just to, and I always do, just to have it because I feel like, what if the phone doesn't work? What if it right. runs out of juice or whatever? Every once in a while, I think it's just going to blow up on me. And yeah, exactly. It's just going to burst into flames. You're like, oh my god. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult. It's 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 rewritten the way we relate to each other. It's rewritten society and how society works. Yep. Um, and you can, you you can be countercultural and you can move away from your smartphone. But you're going to be giving things up and it's always going to be something that you have to explain. You know, why don't you do this? Why aren't you doing this? Why don't you have this? But and if you're going to do a criminal act, leave your phone home. Sure. Because one of the biggest That's ways best. people get caught yeah. is that they, you know, look at the January 6th riots, for example. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Put yourself on Facebook. I was there, you know. It's great. I could be here. Ma'am, you. Yes. You had a question. Let's take that as the final one. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I've been like a literary omnivore, you know, sort of all my life. I've read wildly across genre. You know, I could point to inspiration from, you know, Jane Austen or V.C. Andrews, like Stephen King and, you know, the Bronte sisters, Tolkien, Heinlein, like just it doesn't even matter what the genre is. Like, especially as a kid, my mom was a librarian. We had shelves and shelves of books. You know, there was no censorship at all. Like if I could reach it, I could read it, you know. So I was reading things that were wildly inappropriate for my age from the time I was really young. But like, I think that I always have to come back to Truman Capote. Um, Truman Capote was where... I fell in love with language as a kid, you know, like in his short stories, like the other voices, other rooms and music for chameleons, like the way he was able to, you know, some of it's fiction, some of it's like, you know, vignettes from his life, but the portraits that he was able to sort of paint of pictures of, of people and the, you know, like how he seemed to have his like finger on the pulse of like sort of the very sad, frail human heart you know like I really fell in love with language in Truman Capote's short stories and then it was it was in cold blood uh, which is really the first you know true crime book ever written um, where I felt like I w was given permission to be who I am as a writer you know that you could look into the darkness but that you could do it with empathy and with beauty and you know compassion and so that, I, I always have to point to Chuma Capote as being one of my major influences.
Um, I want to thank you all very much for coming out this evening. Please do not use your smartphones to update us That's at right. this moment. I'm really serious. Don't get your DNA tested. No, don't do that. Make, right. Check the lock so, code on your rental cabin. Right. On your um, way home, yeah. crash your car as you're looking at the election results, but <laughs> don't do right. it here. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, virtual audience, for joining us. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.